Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Strap on your parachute, it's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello, and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponzik, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, we are less than three weeks away from Election Day. It's hard to believe. But in the lead up, there's been many narratives offered regarding what the market is pricing in, a blue sweep, something else, and also advice offered on what investors should do in different outcomes. Should you listen to them? Our guest weighs in. And as always, we will close out the episode with our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. So I want to introduce a, a, a new tradition too, and that is an update on your puppy. I think I think we need to know how the the golden doodle's doing. You know, the last two nights she slept soundly through the entire night. So big props to her, but also very exciting for me because certainly if I was going to give you an update, I'd say the first three nights I was very sleep deprived and <laughs> up every couple <laughs> hours with a, a whining puppy, but she's doing great. She's getting acclimated um, to the city as acclimated as you can get after coming off of a, a farm in Pennsylvania. <laughs> well, well, good news that you're well rested. How many shoes has she destroyed? What's the tally? Uh, surprisingly, not many. She's still scared of shoes at this <laughs> point in time. Our, the little game we play is I put on my sneakers so she can't bite my toes and chase her around the apartment because it gets her to run um, since she's scared of shoes if I have them on my feet. So no no right. shoes eaten yet. That's a that's a success. That's pretty good. That's a good, good strategy you got there. <laughs> and speaking of strategy, see what I did there? I see what you did there. We're very happy to have one of the best there is. Uh, her name is Lizanne Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist at Charles Schwab. Uh, Lizanne, welcome back to the show. It's been a while. I don't think we've talked since uh, all the craziness started. How are you uh, faring during lockdown? Uh, faring fairly well. Thank you. And thanks for having me again. I think you're right. I think it was pre-pandemic. Right. How things have changed in the in less than a year. Indeed. So, Lizanne, I was reading uh, one of your recent commentaries, you know, about uh, sort of the the way to look at the market with the election coming up. It's funny, but, you know, as journalists and strategists, I think we're both sort of forced to to <laughs> fit the election into our worldview, whether we like it or not. But I, what really stuck out to me is a few lines you had about, you know, obviously the old standard boilerplate that past returns are no guarantee of future results and and how in this election, particularly in this economic environment, history probably is not as much of a guide as it uh, perhaps we would like it to be. 
Um, so I'm just curious how you're looking at the, uh, you know, the election. Is there a danger of people sort of focusing too much on the horse race and what it means for markets? Is that is that something that, you know, y- you worry about clients uh, of Schwab sort of worrying a little too much about what's going to happen in November and, and less about the bigger sort of fundamentals and trends coming up in the next year? I, I do worry about it a little bit. And, and that's partly due to the fact that the most common version of an election related question I get as it relates to markets is, should I get out now, go to cash and then put my money back in after the election when, and I'll hear, you know, the inevitable volatility dies down. And I would say this in any environment and not just specific to an election. Um, get in and get out are not investing strategies. That's gambling on a moment in time. In this case, it would be gambling on some perceived election outcome, good or bad. And that's not investing. Investing should always be a process over time. And I think we're, it's human nature to say, if X happens, then Y is going to happen and try to connect dots between a variable election, economic earnings, valuation, whatever it is, and what the market has been doing or is going to do. And wouldn't it be lovely if uh, life was as easy as that? And it isn't. So, uh, you know, there there are certainly strategies that individuals might want to employ if they really feel like they want to limit any kind of downside. Uh, so there's hedging strategies that can be done. But the whole get out now and then get back in, uh, that that's not a strategy. So stay invested. I'm curious what you think of some of these narratives that I alluded to that have been floating around, that part of the reason that we have seen the market return to resiliency is the fact that it is pricing in a blue sweep. What that means is we could see trillions of dollars worth of fiscal stimulus down the pipes. That could then lead to a rotation to small caps or value. Do you buy these narratives. I mean, like like Mike said, as journalists, also um, sometimes as, as strategists or investors, we'll look at the market and, and try to assign a narrative or backfit a narrative to anything we are seeing. Is it possible to actually go ahead and say, sure, yeah, this is what the market's pricing in, or is this just a market that happens to be rallying for any, any which reason, and, and this is what people are deciding the narrative is, considering how close we are to an election? To your point, Sarah, it is impossible to quantify, particularly if you're actually talking about a narrative. And even if you believe in your heart that that is the underlying force behind what the market is doing, actually being precise about the impact it's having and how much is priced in. But I don't think it's a stretch to say and call it a narrative, call it an actual infusion of liquidity, but that the the liquidity slash fiscal, the monetary fiscal combination, stimulus, relief, whatever term you want to use, I think has been a powerful force um, underpinning uh, stocks, not necessarily on uh, any given uh, day or week. But I think that has been an important story because in an environment, particularly when we were in the heart of the pandemic, the entire economy was shut down. We had the Fed doing unprecedented things. Uh, and Congress doing unprecedented things, particularly in, in both the concept of size and scope, that money has to go somewhere. And in the absence of an economy that's humming along, uh, that money either can just stay in the pockets of individuals or stay in the financial system or find its way into asset markets. And, and that is clearly what happened. And I think more recently, yeah, I think from a macro perspective, the idea of more on the fiscal side and potentially a larger sum of that 
in the event of a Biden win relative to the size of the package currently being negotiated could be an underpinning. But the reality is this market is largely being driven by a small handful of stocks uh, being traded by, in many cases, really small investors. So that's not a narrative. That's the actual mechanics to some degree of what's happening. I'm not sure that cohort is necessarily focused on the big picture, um, you know, monetary fiscal. They're just, you know, chasing momentum stocks. So it's a combination. <laughs> you know, Lizanne, that's a great point about the sort of the return of the day trader and the and the small dollar trader. Um, you know, I I would have to assume that the move to commission free trading is, is somehow amplifying that uh, that phenomenon. Does that make it sort of harder for you to sort of figure out where the market's going, what's going to happen next? You know, is that now that we're almost dominated, I think retail investors are uh, I was looking at some numbers from Larry Tab, our, our Bloomberg intelligence uh, analyst who, who digs into market structure. It's one of the biggest cohorts of investors and traders right now. I think retail mom and pop traders actually rival hedge funds for as far as how much volume is is attributable attributable to them in the market. You know, I worry is is that retail trader base sort of a a, a fickle and hard to analyze uh, investor base, and what does that mean going forward in the market? Is it sort of a recipe for either I don't know higher sort of a higher plateau evaluations or or could we expect sort of more volatility as a result uh, of, of, you know, sort of smaller traders chasing the, the momentum or maybe perhaps even chasing it on the way down if, they, if they're so inclined to, to start shorting the market? Um, is, is that – I know this is a 12-part question, which is my, my specialty, but, <laughs> but how, does, how does this sort of up-and-coming uh, group of traders dominating volume affect the way the market operates and how you're, how you're watching and sort of analyzing what's going on? I mean, the short answer is we don't know because this is a cohort of traders that are brand new. So we don't have a long history. Now they're, they're part of a larger cohort, of course, retail investors, but this sort of what I've been calling newly minted day traders, um, largely trading via apps and more recently moving, uh, to a significant degree into the options market, into, uh, call, short dated call buying, naked call buying. And so we don't yet have any history of this cohort in terms of what any negative market action might do to that cohort, because most of the dominance of that cohort started in the late March, early April timeframe. And there were many ingredients to the recipe that uh, of, of this power of this small retail uh, trader. You mentioned uh, 0% commissions. Um, we at Schwab might have had something peripherally to do with that. A little bit. Something to do with it, maybe. Just, you know, maybe. I, I seem to recall we <laughs> said something about that. And then, of course, fractional shares. And then the combination of pandemic-related forces, people being home, doing much more on their digital devices, uh, no uh, sports betting for quite some time. So I think it was just this tsunami of things that happened to really bring out this new form of uh, trader. Now, what we don't know, again, is if we get into any significant market corrective phase beyond just what we had for a short period in June and a short period of September, whether they get beholden. Um, on the long side, which was what happened in September, 
or uh, they get scared out of the market if the pain is more severe than what we experienced, or do they just shift gears and start doing the same thing on the put side of the options equation as they did on the call side? So we don't know. What I will say is the kind of speculative froth we're seeing among that cohort is not matched by other measures of investor sentiment, either attitudinal or behavioral. So we don't have the same kind of speculative fervor, whether it's in attitudinal surveys like AAII or other measures that I think are tracking more what either older individual investors, not traders are doing, or across the spectrum of institutions. And in fact, it's never happened before, but very recently we've seen this huge increase in call buying um, by small traders. At the same time, a huge increase in index put buying. And that tends to be done by the commercial hedgers and the big institutions. So we have this incredible divergence between what we used to think of as the smart money and the dumb money. So far, to the extent you think of this cohort as the dumb money, they haven't been so dumb because they've been right. But they also haven't been tested to any significant uh, degree. But I also think, you know, Mike, you rightly cited the statistics around what percentage they represent in trading volume, but there's feeder effects of that. So if you're, if you're a small trader and you're buying a call option, the market maker selling that call option has to purchase the underlying security as a hedge. So that forces the market makers to buy the same stocks that underlie the options that the small traders are doing. And then because a small subset of stocks represents such a large share of the overall index, it pushes the index up and traditional institutions who might be benchmarked against the S&P have no hope of beating the S&P unless they're in those names. So there is the circle in which we live. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I've heard the last couple of weeks described as deja vu to August and September. Now, to be seen if it ends the same way. But something I find really interesting is that in the middle of the summer, I feel like we constantly heard this idea that the only reason that we saw these smaller retail traders really uh, active in the markets was because they were bored, there were no sports on, uh, those that were young weren't in school, uh, college was out of session. Well, now we're in late October. There are plenty of sports to watch on TV. Uh, Many have gone back to school, if that's the case, if you're a college-aged kid, or at least you're taking classes virtually to some extent. And we hear these 
relations or comparisons to the dot-com days, is it possible, and I know it's dangerous to say it's different this time, but is it possible to say the difference now is that we do have this move to zero commissions and it's very possible that this is a trend that's here to stay. This is a new cohort of the market that isn't just going to disappear. Well, I hope it's a new cohort of the market. I hope we have finally enticed younger investors into the world of investing in the stock market because I think pre-pandemic, they were sort of written off as as dead. Never, We're never going to entice younger investors into the market, maybe because of either they were burned through the financial crisis or maybe they watched parents get burned through the financial crisis. And Wall Street broadly was has been sometimes painted with a very negative brush. So long term, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful. That doesn't mean there aren't risks in the very near term. Now, I, I think even now that sports is back and sports betting is back, what we have to remember is that this has become partly why this has become popular is because it's working so far. And so um, the, the, this sort of cohort feeds off itself. There's a lot of platforms that it expose what others are are doing. It's almost like the you know pelotonification of uh, of trading or the gamification of of trading. So it, the the bells and the whistles and the excitement of of doing well and making money that um, that I think is the it's a force in the near term. But if it eventually can morph into a, a true educated understanding of what it means to invest long term without significant carnage on the path from point A to point B, that would be great. Um, and, and I don't, I don't view this as some bubble that's going to burst spectacularly and, uh, the, these folks are going to, uh, be in a world of hurt, but there are some risks associated with it. It's just a question again of whether, we can sort of bridge this gap and that in that span, there's appropriate education because more than just anecdotally, we know that some of these traders, particularly in the options market, um, may not be as educated about what they're doing as what an ideal scenario would be. Yes. uh, As Sarah points out, sports are back on TV, except for Sarah's Miami Heat. They they got their season got canceled. It was a sad ending. But, you know, (laughs) the fact that they made it to the finals, I'll take it. I'll take it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, speaking of that that sort of young, aggressive uh, cohort of investors, I, I will point out I haven't had my, sho- my shoes shined in a long time, so I don't have a, the sort of shoe shine guy anecdote. But my 17-year-old daughter just got a job and a couple paychecks into it, she came up to me and said, I'm... I really want to get into the stock market. Do you, do you know anything about the stock market? And I, of course, I was like, not not really, no. But uh, does your daughter know what you to, do for a living? She, she, I, I now I clearly realize she has not been paying attention at all to when I when I explain to her what I do. But she she mentioned Tesla. She, she knew someone someone knew someone who made ten thousand dollars in Tesla, and then someone else made enough money to buy to, uh, buy a Tesla with what they made on Tesla. So I do, you know it. Lizanne, it's getting to that sort of anecdotal level, I think, where, you know, again, who's I don't know anyone who gets their shoe shined anymore, but it's it's that sort of unsophisticated. It sort of to me, I, I, I hate to bring the parallel to the, the cryptocurrency craze and the Bitcoin craze uh, a, a few years ago, but it almost feels like that to me is this sort of piling in uh, into the momentum. Um, but I wonder, you know, Put aside the election, put aside sort of what retail traders do next. 
And you get back to the fundamentals and you look at an S&P at, I don't know, was it 27 and, and change on a, on a trailing earnings basis? I know you're not going to go to cash because the election's coming up, but does that sort of valuation, given all the unknowns with how the virus and, and the vaccine will progress, does that give you a pause at all to, to sort of de-risk, um, you know, ahead of sort of how we see the economy shaping up uh, next year? I think there may be reasons to de-risk, especially if your portfolio is now grown potentially via lack of rebalancing to a heavy emphasis on those kind of hot momentum areas of the market. Um, but I wouldn't use valuation as uh, certainly not a singular reason to do that because valuation of any variety, whether it's trailing PE, forward PE, Schiller's cyclically adjusted PE, Tobin's Q, Fed model, price to book, price to sales, um, terrible, terrible market timing tool. Um, there's, there's no correlation between what valuation is at any point in time and what the market does say over the subsequent one year period of time. Correlations go higher when you look out over many years, you know, call it 10 year time uh, periods. And the reason for that is we think of valuation, uh, particularly in, it, when you're talking about a PE ratio, is having two quantifiable components. You know what the P is, certainly on a trailing basis, you know what the E is. On a forward basis, you know what the expectation is because it's published. So we therefore think of it as this fundamental indicator because there's quantifiable components. The reality is that valuation is a sentiment indicator more than it is a fundamental indicator. There are times where investors are willing to pay nosebleed valuations and find ways to justify it. And there's times when investors don't even want to pay a single digit PE ratio like in early 2009. So it's a reflection of sentiment more than anything else. I think the valuation measure or measures that the ardent bulls will use in this environment are equity risk premiums, given that we've got short rates pinned at zero as far as the eye can see. So the discount rate you're using to discount future earnings is basically zero. And on an equity risk premium relative to treasuries, relative to corporate bonds, stocks look relatively inexpensive. My, my sort of take on the other side of that is, Totally agree. The discount rate is pegged at zero. However, it's a discount rate discounting a future stream of earnings. We are at some point going to actually have to see that future stream of earnings. A ZERP environment is not going to sustain the market ad infinitum without an eventual return in earnings. I just think that discount rate being pegged at zero is saying to investors that pay attention to this stuff, maybe you can lengthen your time horizon in terms of the wait until earnings move back into positive territory, supported by that low interest rate environment. So I, I get it. Um, but in broadly, do I think there are risks in this market valuation and otherwise? Absolutely. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, 
about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we do have to see that return on earnings, and this week earnings season did kick off. We're expected to see another decline this quarter of about 20%, another decline in the fourth quarter. However, when I look at the 2021 numbers, I still see consensus analyst estimates looking for about 162 of earnings per share in the S&P, which is not far off where we were just last year in 2019. Do you think that it's possible people are still too optimistic about 2021? I mean, if, if you say that at some point we have to get those earnings, clearly they're pretty optimistic that we will and, and not too far away. Even in a normal environment, analysts, when you're looking a year out, tend to be too optimistic. Then as you get closer to the actual season for the quarter, they, they cut, 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 ultimately setting the bar low enough such that the beat rate is, you know, typically in the 65 percent. Um, unique in this environment, of course, is the lack of visibility, the fact that a record number of companies have withdrawn guidance, certainly in the second quarter. So what analysts have done, at least for this year, is when, you know, absent that more precise guidance from companies um, and absent even macro visibility, given the unique circumstances of this virus, is they erred on the side of cutting estimates too much. So you had a what, 86 percent beat rate for the second quarter, you're running at about a similar beat rate right now, albeit we're very early in, in earnings season at this point. And that may be the case for the fourth quarter as well. But I do think, given what we know now about the economy and its trajectory, I think the numbers as they stand right now probably are a little bit uh, high. But as they start to come down, it wouldn't be that abnormal relative to what we typically see uh, in, in history. Elizabeth, as you point out with the the equity risk premium uh, and the discount rate being close to zero, I mean, it, it brings us back to that old boogeyman inflation, you know, and I I feel like it's got to be the main risk for the stock market is some surprise in inflation. But that said, it's it's kind of been a chicken little situation with inflation over the last decades. People have worried about it forever, been warning that we're, we're headed for some really uh, big inflationary environment, and we just don't see it uh, year after year. Any sort of you know, CPI or uh, PC above that 2%, uh, especially on the core basis. Is there any reason to believe it's this different this time? Do you see uh, you know any potential for an inflation shock given all the all the stimulus given to the economy, how low rates are, and if we do get sort of a, a real a real rapid recovery next year, is there any inflation risk in your mind? Well, I'll start with the with answering the question is it different this time, but but in particular compare it to the period coming out of the financial crisis, the last time we had uh, massive uh, stimulus. Now, in that case, it was purely on the monetary side, very little, if any, on the on the fiscal side. And there was grave concern in the quite a few years um, coming out of whether it was what the Fed did with rates going to zero, but in, in particularly the what turned into three rounds of quantitative easing. And everybody was concerned about inflation with the Fed, you know, printing all this money that was going to inflation accident waiting to happen. What was missing in that analysis is that the Fed was pumping liquidity into the financial system 
during a period where the financial system by necessity was deleveraging. So the, the money that the Fed pumped into the financial system stayed in the financial system. It didn't come out through the lending spigots. There was no demand for borrowing, didn't go into the economy and pick up what we call velocity. You, you mathematically can't get an inflation problem when you have no velocity. Now, in this cycle right now, we're still in that boat in the sense that we've had all of this monetary uh, liquidity pumped into the system. They've even morphed more to trying to pump it into the economy, too, with some of the new tools they're using on the Main Street Lending Program. Then on top of that, you've had massive fiscal relief all combined. You're talking about 40 percent of GDP causing money supply growth as measured by M2, to go up by 25% um, year over year. That was at the peak. However, at this point so far, the M2 money velocity continues to sink like a stone. So not an inflation problem. But that may not be a permanent situation. Um, eras, not just in the United States, but globally, eras of monetary dominance, when they end, tend to end in disinflation or deflation. And we saw that after the financial crisis and after that kind of monetary period of, of, of extreme stimulus. Eras of fiscal dominance tend to end in inflation, especially if the fiscal spending is being done through uh, debt, taking on more debt, directly or indirectly being financed by monetary authorities. So I do think there's a risk. I don't think it's imminent. Um, I think this, the nature of this crisis is more deflationary than inflationary, but I think there's too sanguine a view about inflation kind of in the medium to longer term. And leaving aside the fiscal monetary stimulus triggers potentially for some inflation, you've also got this secular move toward deglobalization and diversification of supply chains. If you're a believer like me, that part of the reason why we had declining inflation for 30 years was because of globalization, it's hard not to see the opposite potentially uh, happening. So I do worry that we went from unfounded fears of inflation in 2010, 2011, 2012, and that was sort of the narrative, it wasn't true. Now, I think the consensus is that inflation is dead and buried forever. And I can't help but wonder whether, um, you know, the devil's advocate in me says, okay, what could the conditions be that actually bring more inflation than what is currently built into expectations? And, and that would be a longer term risk for stocks. So one more question for you, Lizanne, before we get to sharing our crazy things, which I know Mike is so excited about. But we'll, we'll have to wait to see what happens on the fiscal front. But there was a comment this week from San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly um, that really struck a chord. And I'll, I'll read it to you. She said, I'm not willing to trade millions of jobs for people who need a ladder rung up in order to keep the stock market from going up for a few who have those holdings. And basically, she was asked about whether or not the Fed was creating a moral hazard by increasing asset prices. And she said the nature of this recovery is uneven and we need to help people, not necessarily help the stock market, although we may be inflating asset prices. What does that tell you about what the Fed is willing to do here, um, also in relation to the type of recovery that we are seeing? I think the Fed understands the moral hazard aspect of this, that inadvertently, not purposefully, what they've done has been much more to the benefit of asset prices and less to the benefit of the real economy, and that it's it's widened the divide in terms of the, the wealth gap. And that is part of the reason why not just Daly, but but Powell, as, as often as he's got a microphone or a camera in front of him, 
is really pounding the table on the need for more on the fiscal side than on the monetary side. And I think they are, the Fed collectively is sending a very forceful message, not that they're out of tools, um, but that the, the tools or the, the efforts that are needed now to truly help small businesses in the more beleaguered industries and individuals who are still out of work has to be done on the fiscal side, not on the monetary side. And, and I think that that's the appropriate uh, message, whether, you know, whether there are adults in the room on both sides of the aisle that actually uh, can get together and figure this out, maybe is a different story. All right, Mike, I, uh, I think it's that time. All right, it's the time for the crazy things. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. And while this is exciting, we do have a call to the What Goes Up hotline. This is Sam Kidson. Let's hear what the craziest thing he saw in markets this week was. The craziest thing I saw in markets this week is lumber futures. The lumber futures which trade on the CME are quoted in dollars per thousand board feet. And these started off the year around $400 per thousand board feet. And like all markets, you know, on April 1st, intraday, it hit about 280. Now it's trading around 540, 550 kind of thing. Uh, so obviously up significantly from the beginning of the year and from the, the low it reached in April. But the really crazy part is that on August 28th, it was actually quoted intraday over $800. So we're talking about 3x or so where it traded in April and double where it started the year. So that's the craziest thing I've seen in markets this week. All right. Well done, Sam. Lumber futures. I don't think we've had lumber futures in the crazy things yet. And boy, it really has been a wild year for lumber futures. So we thank you for that, Sam. Sarah, can you beat the crazy week and year we've seen in lumber futures. What do you got? All right. So I wanted to highlight um, QQQ this week, the NASDAQ 100 ETF. My colleague, Katie Greifeld, who's been on the show before, um, she, she wrote a story about this. But I've just been watching flows day to day. And three out of four of the fund's largest inflows have come within the last month. And they've been huge. They've been massive compared to what we typically see day to day. That fourth one was in 2000. And of course, I'm, I'm not making a comparison um, to now in 2000. That's just when the other one was. But in trying to ask investors or, or strategists or traders why we're seeing this, you just get a variety of answers. Um, some of them are saying this actually might be due to what we're seeing in the options market um, because we've seen some drastic outflows too. Others just say that Investors are simply just betting on big tech, considering that QQQ is the NASDAQ 100 ETF and has a very heavy tech weighting. Um, but I think it's really difficult to just look at these flows that we're seeing almost day to day now um, and, and say they're not crazy. All right. I'll, I'll accept that. No theories on that QAnon is involved in the QQQs? Uh, are you going to bring that in here? I'm going to throw that one out there. You I should don't know. reach out to no, Katie no Greifeld, tell her that she should update her story yeah. with the QAnon theory. Yeah, that that's the uh, beauty of the QAnon theories. They don't need to make any sense. You can just uh, you can just shoehorn them in. All right, Lizanne, uh, can you beat the flows into the QQQ as uh, a crazy thing this week? Does mine have to be market related? Nah, for you, we'll let it slide. For All a blue right. hen, I'll let it slide. Thank you. Um, the craziest story I saw this week was, and I had not seen the pre-story about 
an asteroid that was uh, now in the Earth's <laughs> orbit and, and heading toward us, and it was a fairly large one. And it was getting increasing attention. It actually turns out to be a portion of a rocket that was a rocket that had a failed moon landing in 1966. No and way. has been basically orbiting the sun and somehow it, it left the sun's orbit and now is in the Earth's orbit. Um, and, and it's not an asteroid potentially crashing to Earth, but a, uh, what is that, a 54-year-old uh, piece of a rocket. That's amazing. I, I had not heard of that. That's really interesting. Sounds safe for us to have a 54-year-old yeah, rocket crashing down to Earth. I don't know, I don't know that that's necessarily, <laughs> if, it, like, if it lands in the middle of your uh, roof, I'm not sure, asteroid or, you know, a portion of a rocket, the damage factor may be the same, right? doesn't matter. <laughs> we talk about momentum and velocity. I'm sure that would have plenty. <laughs> yeah, that's how we tie it to the market. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I thought it was going to be that asteroid with like a hundred gazillion dollars worth of gold, gold and precious minerals <laughs> stored in it. Which, Wouldn't that be nice? It's just going to fall which, uh, on Earth and then it's going to make Bitcoin more valuable. That's the theory. <laughs> well, that's a good one. I'm going to have to look up that story. And then I'm going to I'm going to like sleep in my closet under pillows or something <laughs> waiting for that thing to land. But all right. Well, mine, as Sarah will tell you, I like the alternative asset space, the the more alternative, the better. So very fascinating auction from Christie's in New York. Lizanne, I'll preface this by saying uh, I had to take Shakespeare at the University of Delaware because I was an English major. I think you were a business major. I No, I was uh, political science and economics, so I did okay. not have to take Shakespeare. Thankfully. I, I, I would... I would have preferred any calculus, trigonometry, stats, would throw anything at me other than Shakespeare. I, I did not do well. But um, this is courtesy of the National Post. A rare book from the year 1623. It was the first book that brought together all of William Shakespeare's plays into one, uh, one edition. Sold at auction at Christie's. Sarah, you know what time it is. What's your bid? I was just about Price to... Is right. I, was, I was just kind of to trying to rack my brain and think of a price because I've been so unbelievably off on my guesses lately. <laughs> um, hmm. What am I going to say? I'll go with 115K. 115K. I'll okay, take I'm, the way I'm, over. Okay. All right, Lizanne. Yeah, you'll, she's good. She's doing the prices right thing. She'll, she'll go 116. <laughs> this is my problem. I, I've, I've been way over lately. So now I've been going way under. Uh... Well, I just <laughs> took the way over. So I'm not going to give a number, but I, I think it's way higher than that. I will tell you, uh, based on my own experience with Shakespeare, I would have only bought this book if it came with the Cliff Notes version <laughs> uh, attached to it as well. All right. Before I give you the answer, let's compare it to another alternative asset. A rare guitar used by the Beatles, George Harrison, and John Lennon sold at auction. This was a fretless guitar. I don't know if you guys know much about it, but that's that's very rare. It was used on the White Album, on three tracks on the White Album, album which if you know the Beatles, that might influence your, your bidding. Not, not one of my favorites of theirs, but... All right, Sarah, more or less than the Shakespeare, than your Shakespeare bid, what are you going for? I'd be tempted to say more but i could also be horribly wrong okay that's no that's not an answer that's okay this is me being extremely wishy-washy shakespeare went for more than the guitar all right 9.9 million for the shakespeare book oh way off unidentified buyer the beatles guitar was only uh 190 pounds 190 quid i was thinking more so due to recency uh and i feel like even I feel like guitars are used as decorative aspects and 
that's where my yeah. head was going with this, but yeah, the Shakespeare book's not very decorative, but uh, I don't know, Lizanne, would you dump a sixty forty portfolio to go say sixty stocks, forty percent Shakespeare first edition, little bit of Beatles? <laughs> I, I'm Any... a I'm a rock chick, but. Uh... Um, I would invest if if Robert Plant decided he is willing to bring back Led Zeppelin for a tour with Jason Bonham, I'd be willing to invest a boatload of money in that. So that's that's how I'll tie investing into rock bands. And you'd be uh, in the first row. <laughs> I would. <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd pay up for that show, too. That'd be a good one. I agree. So. All right. I think that's all our time. Oh, Sarah's got Twitter something one. else. Yeah. Oh, 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 yeah. Really we got quick. a, oh, that's good. We got a crazy thing over Twitter. Let, let's hear it, Sarah. Yeah, so this one actually comes from Nick Carraway. His Twitter handle is at Carraway34. And he tweeted us a Wall Street Journal story with the headline, um, Santander bond surges as investors take a risky bet on debt redemption. And he said to us, if this doesn't qualify as a craziest thing contender, I don't know what does. And it is certainly a great contender. Uh, the lead of the story reads, Investors are betting that Spanish lender Banco Santander won't be able to make interest payments on a risky form of debt in a string twist of events. Instead of shunning the debt, investors are scooping it up. So it's typically not the relation that you would see. I, I, good story. Good story. I do wonder about this guy's name. Isn't Nick Carraway the guy from uh, The Great Gatsby, the character in The Great Gatsby? I told you I was an English major. <laughs> so no, uh, no Shakespeare, but Gatsby. Yeah, I'm not sure that's that guy's real name, but we appreciate the the contribution to the craziest things. And as always, if you saw something crazy, tweet to us at uh, at podcasts or at Sarah or myself. And uh, otherwise, you can give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline at 646-324-3490 and leave us a voicemail with your crazy thing and maybe we'll play it on the show. I think we had a great round today. I think uh, we'll give Lizanne the win with the rocket. And ties into markets because of velocity and velocity, momentum. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll stretch it. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah. it was so great to have you on the show. Lizanne Saunders, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gaspore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.